And we're live. Great. So welcome, everybody, to yet another live interview show with Become a Fearless Father. And today I am really excited to have Richard here with me. Uh, he became highly recommended from somebody that you might have all heard that's been on the show a long time ago already, Andy Go. So, Richard, thank you so much for hopping on. I really appreciate it. And um, I got really excited. So I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> want to get this question out before anything else. I, saw the book. I was excited about the titles and then I saw one that stuck out the most and it said simple thinking. And yeah. I was like, yes, that struck with me because so many of us, if not all of us, we always try to overcomplicate everything, right? So share with me what it's about. What is the strategy of simple thinking well you know what class it came to me um really based on my uh, previous career my my background which was as a primary school teacher right mm. so um and i remember one day many years after leaving uh, primary education doing some work for a major tech company and the ceo saying to me richard you know th this is a real problem for us because we're hiring the brightest and the best and they just don't seem capable of taking risks, being creative, uh, self-leading. And I just, every time I've been in a situation like that, I've thought to myself, my God, you should be in a room full of kids under five then. Because they, they possess all those characteristics, right? They're gloriously simplistic creatures. They're deeply curious. They're risk takers. They're collaborators. They just venture through life. I remember, so I remember um, one of my teaching lecturers when I was training to be a teacher saying to me actually that uh, she believed that we learn, we learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five years old, right? And for most people, you think about that. So I'm not talking about the stuff, the content, but you think about the first five years of life, right? We learn to walk and talk, most of us. We learn to understand body language, vocal intonation, facial expression, the sensory world around us. And all of that comes at a time where we are gloriously simple creatures. And then as we get older, we seem to possess the belief that part of being grown up is having to be complex, that mm. things can't be simple, things can't be instinctive. We don't trust our instincts anymore, right? We become intimidated by other people who seem to be smarter than us, who use bigger words or phrases mm. than we do. We seem to believe that the very concept of happiness or success has to come from some complex construct right and so really the whole idea of simple thinking comes from that premise i wanted to explore why it is we lose that ability to just look at the world through simple eyes why it is we don't trust our instincts anymore and you know really the truth is it comes down to that whole thing about trusting ourselves and becoming increasingly intimidated by what we perceive to be the cleverness of others. So in the book, I got to uh, interview some incredible people from Richard Branson to, to Jay-Z, right? Now, one of the things that these people all have in common is they're all childlike. They all see the world through very simple lenses. They're, they're um, infectiously curious, 
and constantly questioning and challenging the world around them, which is stuff we do as kids, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Man, I love it. <laughs> I'm running everything now. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. And um, before we continue, um, share with us uh, your background story and, of course, also your um, your family, right? Sure. Right. So, uh, well, they're connected more closely than most people's possibly. So I, uh, when I left school, I wanted to be an actor. Um, mm. that, that was it for me, right? I just, I wanted to be the next Olivier. Um, but there was a very serious flaw in my master plan, which was I just didn't have any talent. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 looking back on my uh, schoolboy career as an actor, my pinnacle, and, and please don't laugh at this, was playing the Virgin Mary in the Christmas Nativity when I was a little boy, uh, because I went to an boys school. So um, clearly I should have been flattered. I was clearly the prettiest boy in the class. But, you know, that's another story. Anyway, after a couple of years of trying and failing in and around London to make it as an actor and doing all sorts of other jobs from real estate agent to uh, selling below the line advertising, I eventually went back to college, right, to study a degree in a combined area of writing for publication, drama and performance. So I still thought, you know, I'm going to pursue the stuff I love, but it mm -hmm. may be in a different way. And love is really important here because in my first year, I started dating a young woman at the college who was training to be a teacher. Mm. Bummy. She was, she was coming to the end of her degree because she obviously started straight from school. And so I was a, a few lagging a few years behind, but we started dating. And I remember early doors, you know how all of us, whether, you know, you're a guy wanting to date a, a girl or a girl wanting to date a guy, you'll try and find that point of connection desperately so that, the other person feels you've got loads in common, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember going out in those early kind of uh, nervous days on a date for a drink. And she said, oh, I'm training to be a teacher. Teaching's everything I've always wanted to do. And I went overboard class because I really like this girl, right? So I said, teaching, oh, teaching is just the most wonderful. I'd love to be a teacher. Anyway, we, the dating went on and got quite serious. And at the end of my degree, we were still together. She held me to that. And um, she enrolled me for a postgraduate course as a teacher. So that's how I began uh, to become a, a teacher. And just so that people know, that incredible young woman and I are, are still together. We're about to celebrate our 27th wedding anniversary. So something worked. Yeah. But that got me into teaching. Um, and uh, I was a teacher for the nearly 20 years. Um, I was a head teacher for eight of those years, a school principal. Um, and I won't go into all the detail now. People can look up that part of the backstory if they want to. But suffice to say, I was I was privileged enough to be the, the school principal of a, uh, principal of a school that went through a dramatic turnaround. Um, and as a result, everybody wanted a slice of me and knowing what we'd done and how we'd done it in our school context. And that opened a whole new world for me. And so 12 years ago, I took probably the biggest and craziest risk of my professional life. I, um, I gave up my principal's job, not because I didn't want to do it anymore, not because I hated it or had become cynical, 
but because this other opportunity had arisen, which was to explore the world as a speaker and as an author and, you know, incredible opportunity. And I remember like a lot of people, you know, in, in our position, and I, and I think it's really interesting, this whole idea of entrepreneurship, because thousands, millions of people have ideas every day, right? But we often talk ourselves out of the idea. It goes back to what I said about simplicity. We talk mm -hmm. ourselves out of, of insight. And I was procrastinating, right, all the time at this point in my life. This opportunity was here, but I had this incredible job with a good pension, a great salary. By then, also, we had two children um, who were dependent on us. So this wasn't, you know, reckless abandonment was not going to be part of the picture. Um, and by the way, my daughter, who now thankfully has grown up, was high maintenance. She was a high maintenance kid. Do you know what I mean? So this was this was not there was a lot of pressure. And I remember procrastinating and saying, you know, yeah, it sounds like a great idea, but we've got a mortgage and we've got kids and da 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 da. And my wife this incredible young woman I'd met all the way back at college turned around to me one evening and said, Richard, you have spent the best part of 20 years telling children to take risks and seize opportunities. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, are you going to be a hypocrite? Ooh. And that was, that was <laughs> the most powerful uh, coaching anyone had ever given me, right? Because that hit the nail on the head. So as a result, I gave up the headship. Um, and the last 12 years have taken me to extraordinary places, working with unbelievable people. I've had the opportunity to write books and share my passion around leadership and change in human development. So a long winded answer, but I hope it kind of it gets yeah. to the crux. <laughs> it, it ties everything together. And let me share this real quick as well. So this is Richard's uh, website where you can get any extra information that he hasn't shared right now. You might share it still. We're not done yet, but you know, check it out. It's in the comment section, it's in the description section, so you can just click on the link and check it all out. And share with us, because I saw four books. Is that right? Have you written four books so far? Yeah. <laughs> I said that that just um, is absolutely amazing. So one is called Simple Thinking. What are the names of the other three? So there's, there's a kind of chrono chronology to them. The first book yeah. was called Education... Uh, sorry, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today, which was really um, a very personal exploration of my education career and the philosophy that had grown out of my time as a, mm -hmm. as a teacher and principal. So it talks very much about my driving philosophy and vision for the future of education. And the second half of the book then tells the story of the school I was principal of and puts all of that kind of big picture stuff into very practical terms by mm. telling the very real story of the school turnaround. Then I, I honestly thought that would be, well, I didn't even think that was going to be a book class, right? When I, when I first left school, my mentor, a, a dear friend of mine, said, just write it all down so that you never forget it, right? It mm. became a book. Sold well. I then get the opportunity to write a second book. But this time I was approached by a publisher who didn't just want a book about education. And they said to me, what else is floating your boat? What else interests you in the world you're now in? And I got fascinated by why it is people find change so hard, right? Mm -hmm. So the second book was called Change, Learn to Love It, Learn to Lead It, and was a much bigger exploration around a much larger picture about that concept of why people find change hard and what we can do to be better at it. 
from that came Simple Thinking, which was the, the third book, which really was kind of a follow up to, to change because the two things are, I found were quite linked. And I realized I had so much material and, and more questions to ask that that's where Simple Thinking came from. And then recently, just in the summer, just gone, I, I decided I started writing my fourth book uh, uh, two years ago on the 10th anniversary of me leaving frontline education. And, and I decided to return to education and wrote my fourth book, which is called Education and Manifesto for Change, because in that decade, I'd seen so many things out of education that I'd wished I'd known when I was in education that I decided to write a reflective piece about, you know, what, what have I seen in the big wide world that resonated with me with my educator's hat on? Mm -hmm. And really, the book is a plea. It wasn't written just for educators because what, I, what I've realized profoundly over that decade is we do not collaborate enough, any of us, parents, businesses, educators, to really understand the complexity of the future our children will be inheriting and how we all need to work co uh, collaboratively and cooperatively to ensure our kids get that best, best shot at life. So, yeah, mm -hmm. those are the four books. Nice. I love it. Um, yeah, I went there. <laughs> Apparently, simple thinking um, was the one that stuck out to me, but I should have, we should have tried to go in the, in the chronological order. <laughs> Don't worry. I didn't know. So, hey, great. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, got more questions. I got to ask one because um, one of uh, my earlier guests uh, a while back, um, he, he travels a lot for, for his, with his job, right? And he was really, and I'm assuming you as well as a speaker that, you know, and as an author, you have to promote your books or you're traveling away from family. And he was struggling with guilt for being away um, several days at a time and not seeing his family. And I actually find out that pretty much anybody that's been traveling has some sort of guilt and different ways of dealing with it. I'm really interested in picking your brain a little bit about how, you know, did you have certain feelings of, of guilt not being with your family and how did you go about dealing with it if, if possible because he said I just I can't deal with it <laughs> yeah well there are two things for me and you're absolutely right and it began actually for me when I was a teacher because I remember reflecting on leaving so my children um my children now are, are 23 and 18 and they mm -hmm. interestingly we might come on to this later interestingly they both left home now my son's at university he's 18 my daughter lives away with her boyfriend has a has a life of her own but when I left my career as an educator, they were still relatively young, right? My daughter was 11. My son was a bit, uh, a bit younger. Um, and I remember that was the first time the guilt clicked in because I remember thinking to myself then, I had given other people's children my best energy. But mm. what I mean by, you know, I'd been in school all day long, infusing other kids, listening, learning with them. Having, and then coming home exhausted, like we all do from a day at work, and my own kids were there, and I know in reflection. So that's the first really profound point of guilt, that I was not giving them the same energy I was giving other people's children. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then the travel clicked in. Um, but I'll tell you something, again on reflection, it's very interesting, because you know, since the kids have got to that age and they were starting, we've done a lot of talking. Mm -hmm. And actually, my daughter said something really profound to me. 
she said, you know, Dad, you were such a much more present and wonderful father once you'd finished your job in education. She mm. said, you were always a great dad. We always, when we had time together, it was so valuable. It was, it was wonderful. But it, you were always exhausted. You always seemed exhausted and, and stressed and elsewhere. She said, and yeah, over the last, you know, 10 or 11 years, you've traveled a huge amount. But when you've not been traveling, you have been 100% present. So when you've been with us, you have been 100% with us. You know, we, we've had the best of you and all of you. And I would say to people, you know, I don't, I don't, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And we could all spend our lives beating up on the stuff we should have done better and could have been better at, particularly as parents, right? Mm -hmm. Because we only get the one shot and there's no instruction manual. And I believe my wife and I have always, A, given our best to the best of our ability to our kids we love that they are the most precious gifts in any of our lives right mm -hmm. um but there are always things we could have done better but i don't want to lament on the past and i've learned that in the last few years and i just want to be the best i can be now for my children nice. um and so i think that was a really interesting point and certainly for the person you know in response to the person you were talking about who travels a lot i don't think being there a hundred percent of the time is important, but I think when you're there, being there a hundred percent is, and yeah. and that that to me is how at least I've come to terms with with my own guilt. And and by the way, the other thing that my wife and my wife and I have talked a lot about in in the last couple of years is we're incredibly proud of our kids, and really, mm -hmm. and the reason we're really proud of our kids is because they're both strong, confident. Uh, individuals who are brilliantly equipped now to forge their own lives based on their own passions, their beliefs, their desires. Um, they're good people. And I think as parents, really, the best way to gauge whether you've been a decent parent is whether your kids are ready to lead their own lives with mm -hmm. confidence, maturity and and um, concern and happiness. And, and so from my point of view, yes, we could have done a whole lot more. But I also think, by the way, any parent that has the ability to constantly assess their own performance as a parent to feel guilt is a good parent because they mm. bloody care, right? They really care. The parents we should be worry about, worried about are the complacent ones who just think they're drifting through life being wondrously great at being a parent. The mm -hmm. parents who feel pain and anxiety and concern and guilt. If you're feeling those things, I'd say to you right now, looking you in the eye and say, you know what? That means you're a good parent because you deeply care. Exactly. Well said. Yep. Really appreciate it. I'm glad I asked you that question. And I'm going to share that later on with you. <laughs> um, the other thing that I want to talk about is, of course, change. Because, you're, you, you know, that's absolutely right what you said. Like so many of us are so afraid of change and it gets us stuck in mm. where we are regretting. Like what you talked about a little bit as well, like we regret then when we, we end up at a certain age and we're like, okay, now it's definitely too late, even though it's not. But still, um, so what is it? that people are so afraid of to change and what is the best way or what are some of the ways that you highly recommend people to start, you know? Well, I mean, the, interesting, the interesting thing is, again, in a way, it all harks back to my core career because every question I've ever asked comes back to how come our kids are so much better at it than we are, right? And one of the interesting things is that we are not educated and raised 
to live in a world of uncertainty. As parents, our instinct is often to protect our kids and therefore we perceive uncertainty as dangerous. So we try and remove it from our children's lives. Through the education system, which of course was designed and predicated to, to work on the idea that if you got your head down, did what you were told, you'd end up in certain routes for life, whether it was blue collar or white collar. You, the, the, the entire way we were raised and previous generations were raised was to lock down your life, get to a point where you could find a career, a career that you were good at, a career that paid okay, that gave you a guaranteed income for the rest of your life, which meant you could buy a home, build a pension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So our entire perception of the world is molded around this pursuit of certainty. But mm -hmm. what we've seen, of course, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, and particularly since the financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9, is a world that has moved way, way beyond that. You know, the future is deeply uncertain. It's deeply unpredictable. And I don't mean that in a negative way. You know, if you view it one way, it's horrendously negative for people like me raised for certainty. But if, you ra if you're raised in an entrepreneurial environment where you embrace that uncertainty as an opportunity, right, it can be extremely exciting. The problem is we're still raising our children to believe that the job is to lock down certainty. And, and just to get deep and, and maybe big thinking for a minute, I think there is a huge link to what we're seeing politically and socially in the last few years to the struggle we're facing, right? Whether it's the rise in populism, whether it's things like, dare I say it, Brexit, whether it's um, the election of extremes in politics like Trump and Bolsonaro in Brazil, what we're seeing are angry people, good, um, logical, sensible, angry people who are reacting against authority because they're not getting the certainty they were promised, right? So mm -hmm. we're at a tipping point. And I think for me, what we have to do is be far more cognizant of the fact that we've got to stop training children to look for certainty and get them to embrace far more that idea that they're born with of curiosity, of living. You know, I, I often say that when you go back to this idea of very young children, and particularly babies and toddlers, every single minute of every single day is new, right? Their entire life is changed. Yet I have yet to see a one-year-old child going through therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change in their life. So for me, the entire point about this thing around change is we have to recalibrate what we see as good parenting and good, ed good educating. We have to help people understand that actually uncertainty and change is opportunity. The mm. other big perception problem within change is in our adult lives, and particularly in our adult professional lives, most change is reactive right? We react to stuff, whether it's in our domestic environment or our professional environment. And therefore, we feel that change is something that's done to us. Now, when you have to react to events and something is done to you, it's deeply unsettling. And mm -hmm. actually, one of the great causations of, of um, stress, because, you know, a lot of stress for a lot of people comes from a growing perception that they have no control in their lives anymore. So we see change as a bad thing. And mm -hmm. similarly, particularly in a professional environment, when we go through that reactive process and we're told we're changing policy, changing strategy, changing the organization, 
we don't actually hear change because for most of us that experience doesn't mean change at all it means doing more stuff on top of everything else we're already doing so mm -hmm. actually we hear work harder so the big problems with change are the perception things one it feels like it's reactive and done to us so actually we associate the word change with a loss of control two we get with our perception of change isn't change at all but actually that we're just going to have to get our head down work more hours be more stressed be more exhausted so that's why our perception of change is so rocky and so we have to begin as kids, but we also have to realize that when you think about entrepreneurs, one of the things entrepreneurs have in common, really successful entrepreneurs, A, they've failed more times than they've succeeded, right? Mm -hmm. But B, they are constantly excited by what uncertainty throws up. And their instinct isn't, oh my God, let's run away and try and secure the world as quickly as we can. Their, their instinct is let's dive in and see where this can take us, which mm -hmm. is a very childlike quality. Exactly, love it. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that as well. Um, man, we're already at the, uh, at the end of our uh, live interview. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, again, Richard, for those that have even more questions, I know I do, <laughs> right? <laughs> besides, so besides your, your website, which I'm going to share right now again, um, how can people get in contact with you, follow you, or, for example, find out when, you're, when and where you're speaking? Sure. Well, the best source is the website. And also there's an email address there where they can contact people, uh, contact me. And I promise to get back to people. The other mainstream for me is, is uh, people can find me on LinkedIn. Just look up Richard Gerver. I'm blessed to have, I think, the, I'm the only Richard Gerver in the world, which is uh, a claim to fame. So uh, they can contact me there. And similarly on Twitter, if they go to at Richard Gerver, they'll, they'll find me there. That's usually the place where I talk about where I'm going, what I'm doing. Doing and where I'll be. Um, so uh, yeah, the website, Twitter, LinkedIn, and I promise I love interacting with people. So I'd love people to get in touch. Fantastic. All right, great. So again, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Learn done. So uh, I always enjoy these live interviews. Thanks again for being on. Everybody that's been watching this either right now on the live or in the recording, or maybe you're listening on this on the podcast, and uh, you know, make sure you if you enjoyed this and share it. Show us some love, and um, I'll see you next time. I'm actually going to be on uh, tonight as well in about seven hours with another live interview. So have an amazing day, everybody. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much.